So, woo, here we go. <laughs> um, okay, I'm just going to start with um, just a heads up for you for what's coming um, here um, at Walker next week. Um, you're probably aware that we're getting right to the end of our King series now. This is the last message. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I don't know whether this kind of resonates with you, but Rod and I have got a whole bunch of feedback from you and from the other congregations as we've gone through this. And it just really strikes us that God is at work among us as a church and that God has been just getting to grips with us um, out there in the, not in the 10% of our lives, which is church on Sunday and in the 90% of our lives, which is out just uh, serving and reading our Bibles and seeking to get to know him better in the week. And it seems that God has just been leading you into the word in his own time, in your own time, maybe leading you into some of the other passages that we haven't uh, covered and that you, he's been giving you opportunities to really put that stuff into practice. And um, that's wonderful because uh, that's been our prayer right from the very start. Um, that as we unloaded some of these tools and opened up some of these passages, that it would give us an appetite as a church to really plow into these parts of the Bible that maybe have been a bit unfamiliar to us. So we've been thanking God for that as a staff and just really blessing him. Um, but as we've been doing that, it's felt really, uh, kind of really been impressed on us that maybe we should make an opportunity for us all to be able to share um, some of those encouragements and some of those stories. So what we're planning for next week is that we're going to throw over a significant part of our service uh, to actually having uh, members of the body come up and just share what it is that God's been doing in our lives as we've been uh, just reading his word and uh, enjoying him over these last several weeks. Um, So I just wanted to ask you if that's you. Um, and it doesn't need to be a big thing, but if there's just something that uh, has really struck you or some way in which uh, your interaction with God's word has been changed, um, come see me. After the service, just um, come up and speak to me or shoot me an email. Um, because as I, as I said, next week, um, we just want to encourage each other um, by sharing what God is actually doing in our lives, because that's the reason why we're here, right? Okay, some nods? Cool. All right. So um, with all of that said, let's get stuck in uh, to our message here this morning. Now, um, we're going to start by doing something that we sometimes do. I want to take you just kind of on a journey in your imaginations before we start here, back to a particular spot in Bible history. So if you will, try to think yourself into uh, what it would have been like to be living in Jerusalem uh, at the close of the reign of David. I'm going to put a picture up here, which is going to help you with this. Um, so, thanks, Tim. Here it comes. Okay, believe it or not, that's Jerusalem in 970 BC. It's tiny, isn't it? It's like a little village. But that's the place where the action was. This here is David's palace. Um, the temple has yet to be built. This is Mount Moriah outside the city. Um, as the city went on to grow under the reign of the different kings, they built that whole thing out and put the temple on the top there. But this is what it looked like uh, when David was on the throne. And um, I want you to understand as you try and put yourself in there in your mind's eye that this is a good time to be an Israelite. David's 40 years on the throne have brought Israel to an unprecedented point of peace. Their enemies on every side have been defeated. So when you walk out of your little house, one of these dwelling places in the morning, you don't have the feeling, hey, you know, are uh, the Philistines going to come knocking on the door? Uh, Are my children going to be called out into battle today? No, at the end of David's reign, those enemies all around them had been defeated and God's people were really united. And spiritually, they're doing really, really well as well. 
Uh, God's presence and his word had never been more central to the life of his people. Men and women throughout the community were finding out what it meant to really know and trust the Lord. Up on the hill there in the palace, you've got a king and all of his musicians writing psalms and singing them uh, in the tabernacle on a Saturday. I dare say we're taking them home, we're singing them in our kitchens during the week. Um, You know, up there, there are sacrifices being made. People are finding their way to forgiveness and restoration. This is a really good time to be a citizen of Israel. But there are also storm clouds on the horizon. Just eight years before this, David's son Absalom led a rebellion in Israel that nearly tore the country apart. I don't know whether you remember that story. And for a time, David himself was forced to flee this little town. Uh, In the end, Absalom was killed, but the whole thing showed how fragile this kingdom could be if God's people started relying on themselves and not putting their confidence in God. And now, as David's reaching the very end of his reign, it looks like the same thing is about to happen again. Despite the fact that David has named Solomon as his successor, uh, one of David's other sons, his eldest remaining son, Adonijah, has started making moves to seize the throne himself. And maybe if we're there in the city, we're hearing the rumors. See, without David's knowledge, Adonijah had begun making alliances with all the key officials in David's government. Adonijah made a deal with David's high priest, Abiathar. He made a deal with David's army commander, Joab. So when David finally died, Adonijah was going to be ready. And it was going to be bad news for Solomon when that day came. But right at the last minute, what we find in the story is that David discovered Adonijah's plan. And he did something that Adonijah completely failed to anticipate. I don't know whether you know what it was. David abdicated. The only king in the whole history of Israel or Judah to do so. You see, while Adonijah and his cronies were sitting around waiting for David to die... Because they reasoned that a king who was as popular as David was would never be able to give up all of that power and adulation of his own free will. David gave it away and he had Solomon crowned in his place. And we're told that David bowed in worship on his bed and he joined his people in praying that God would make Solomon's name and Solomon's throne greater than his own. And isn't that an amazing picture of the man? What a guy, what a rock star David must have been in order after all of those years to be able to just let it go like that. Remember, David's predecessor, Saul, literally lost his mind when people started suggesting that his uh, successor, David, might be greater than he was. And yet David, when he grew old, was able to just wish that blessing on his own son. That's a really distinctive mark of God's work in the human heart, isn't it? And let me just read to you how it happened how that transfer of power took place. In 1 Kings 1, verse 38, we read this. So Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, the Kerithites and the Pelethites, went down and had Solomon mount King David's mule, and they escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and anointed Solomon. And then they sounded the trumpet, and the people shouted, Long live King Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing pipes and rejoicing greatly so that the ground shook with the sound. That was the moment when the kingship of Solomon was announced. 
And that's the way I want to bring us in to this message here this morning, which is, as I said, the final message on the, uh, the kings of Israel. From the story that I've just told you, it sounds, doesn't it, like we're going to end right where we started. And we're going to go all the way back to uh, David and Solomon. But what I actually want to do is take you to the very last king in the line. So um, will you turn with me now in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel? And stand with me out of respect for the gravity of the fact that these are the very words of God. We're going to go to Mark chapter 11 and we're going to start verse 1. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of that chapter. Mark chapter 11. Starting at verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem. And went into the temple courts and he looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Okay, that's our passage today. So take a seat and we'll um, see what we can do with this here. First of all, will you join with me as we pray? God in heaven, we just, uh, we lift our hearts to you. We, we, we're conscious that we just need you to speak And we thank you, God, that it's in your heart to do it, that your word shows us that that's what you're all about. You love to speak to and teach your people. And we pray, God, that you would just remove from us anything that would prevent us from hearing and seeing and truly being uh, changed and gripped uh, by the truth of the Bible. Help us, God, as we read this history, that even though it's so long ago, that these things took place, these events happened in our world And I pray, God, that you would help us to uh, see that truth and see the implications of that truth for our own lives this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so what we've just read is an event in Jesus' life that I guess most of us are really familiar with. Um, And we know it as the triumphal entry, don't we? It took place on the Sunday before the first Good Friday. So the events that we read about here take place at a point where Jesus has about five days left to live. Geographically, we're told that uh, in the first verse of the text that we read that Jesus arrived at Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives and that he made his way from there into the city and arrived at the temple. Now, let's just look at that, get that up here on the map. Um, This is an aerial view of um, Jerusalem now fast forwarded into Jesus' time and you can see that the, uh, the scale of the city has expanded somewhat. That, the little model that we looked at was just down here but now we have the temple built out and uh, the whole wall and everything um, that Herod constructed. Um, and what we find is Jesus starts up here on the Mount of Olives and he makes his way down the hill and then he makes his way up 
uh, into Jerusalem. And it's ambiguous in the text exactly what happens. Some people think he went straight up into the temple. Most of the gospel says he went into the city and then into the temple, in which case he would have come down like somewhere like this. Uh, but that's kind of what we're looking at, down into the valley and then up into the city. Okay. Um, where are we? All right. Um, now, I wonder what we would have made of this if we had been there. Um, if you had maybe been standing somewhere along the route uh, and seen this happen, I wonder what you would have thought. If we know a little bit about the ministry of Jesus, I dare say that we would have thought that this was somewhat out of character. Because if we'd seen Jesus in action during the three years of his career prior to this, uh, we would have got the strong impression that this is a man who was not at all thrilled about being in the spotlight. Whenever Jesus got the chance to start working with a really big audience, he seemed to find a reason to withdraw, didn't he? In Mark chapter 1, we read about the first spate of uh, miraculous healings that he performed in a city called Capernaum. And at the end of the day, they all go to sleep and the people go back to their houses. But then early in the morning, his disciples wake up and they come to him expecting the fun to start again. You know, here we are. We've got this amazing miracle working teacher. You know, the crowd are here. Let's get going. But Jesus gets up. Uh, before they even arrive, uh, he's disappeared. And they go off to find him and he says to them, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also. That's the reason why I've come. So you see, he stepped away repeatedly from the adulation of the crowd so that he could concentrate on teaching. But now from where we're standing, watching this event, watching Jesus come down the hill, it looks like something's changed, doesn't it? Now it seems that Jesus has finally decided that he wants a crowd. People all around him are singing and laying their cloaks in the road. And I wonder what does all of that communicate? <clears throat> well, if we saw someone doing this today, saw someone riding down in an open-top car with people shouting and screaming uh, down into the centre of Grand Rapids, what would you think of that? Somewhat egocentric, maybe? In England, uh, children in uh, school playgrounds shout this acronym at each other when they judge that somebody else is showing off. They shout, Elam, Elam, everybody look at me. Looks a bit like that, doesn't it? After years of shying away from the crowd, Jesus is suddenly acting like a big shot. What's going on here? But if that's true, the donkey is a bit pathetic, isn't it? Doesn't seem like Jesus has much in the way of resources. Doesn't look like there are any marketing experts on his team. Doesn't look like Jesus or his people know how to handle this situation too well. So as we look at this triumphal entry with our 21st century spectacles on, we're tempted to think that it just doesn't seem all that impressive, right? We're tempted to think that Jesus is just a bit naive. You know, if he carries on like this, he's going to get himself killed. But what I want us to do as we start here this morning is take off those 21st century spectacles for a minute, and start looking at this the way that a first century observer would have seen it. I want us to be able to really see this from the perspective of the disciples and from the perspective of this Jewish crowd. I want us to see it from the perspective of people who were steeped in the Old Testament story. So let's start with the disciples and think about it from their point of view. The difference for the disciples is that they have the inside track, right? They're Jesus' confidants. They've been with him throughout his ministry. And as we look at their uh, accounts of their life and experience with Jesus, we see that in their minds, Jesus' ministry fell into two distinct halves, two distinct phases. 
The first phase of Jesus' ministry was all about his identity. The disciples were trying to work out who in the world he was. And so if you read through the first few chapters of the gospel accounts, you find yourself uh, reading uh, questions like this coming from the disciples. Who is this man? Even the winds and waves obey him. Where did he get this stuff? What is this wisdom that's been given him? But it all comes to a tipping point when Jesus finally turns around and he asks them point blank, who do you say I am? You know, he knows that they've heard lots of opinions about his identity, but now he puts them on the spot. And in Mark chapter 8, verse 29, Peter, always the first one to dive in, blurts out his response and says what all of them are thinking. You are the Messiah. And from that point on, Jesus' ministry then enters the second phase. If the first phase is all about who Jesus is, the second phase is all about why did he come? And incidentally, for any of you who are maybe new to this stuff or not so confident with the Bible in your hands, this is a fantastic place to start. If you open up Mark's gospel and you just read the first eight chapters and just ask yourself the question, who is Jesus? And then if you come into the second eight chapters of Mark's gospel and just ask yourself the question, why did he come? You will learn so much about him because those are the two principal questions that that book is designed to answer. With the second question, though, it's a little bit different because we have to wait all the way till chapter eight before we get the answer to the first one. But with the second question, we get the answer right at the start. Mark eight thirty-one and 32, Jesus tells his disciples why he came. He says, I came in order to suffer many things and to be rejected by the teachers and the elders and to be killed and after three days to rise again. And that's kind of striking, isn't it? How many other characters in history do you know whose self-conscious mission in life was to die? Why did Jesus do that? Again, if you're new to this stuff, I can tell you confidently that if you ask yourself that question, why did Jesus come to die? And you pursue that reading through those last eight chapters of Mark, the answer that you find can change your life. I'm guessing that there are many, many people in this room who have that testimony. The answer to that question, why did Jesus come to die, can literally move us from death to life ourselves. Staying with the plot, though, um, as we move on through Mark, uh, if we get to chapter 10, verse 33, we get an important extra detail about why Jesus is doing all this and where it's going to happen. Jesus tells his disciples that he's setting out for Jerusalem because he knows that that's the place where he's going to be tried and executed. So all of that now sheds some extra light, doesn't it, on the passage that we read. When we read the opening words, uh, Mark 11, chapter 1, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, we mustn't miss that first little bit, as they came to Jerusalem. Because if we were the disciples, we would have known what that meant. Since chapter 8, Jesus has been marching resolutely towards this place in order to die here. And now we've arrived. This is it. This is the point where Jesus is going to walk right into the jaws of the lion. Every step that Jesus takes from this point forward is taken with that goal in mind. And maybe that explains uh, a little bit why Jesus lets his ministry become so much more public here. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to die, and he's content now to give his opponents the ammunition they need to accuse him. You know, previously he's been wanting to try and stay out of that stuff to some degree, but now 
You know, it doesn't matter. He's been in control of the timing all the way along. And now he's done the training that he needed to do. He's lived the life that he needed to live. And now he's here to publicly let people know who he really is and then to die the death that he came to die. But now let's look at what happens here from the perspective of this first century Jewish audience who are watching all of this. Now, to really get our heads into this, we just need to appreciate how well these first century Jews knew their Old Testaments uh, because they were raised on this stuff and they kind of drank it in with their mother's milk. And um, I've been struggling to think of a good analogy for this because I come from a non-Christian background, so this wasn't me. Um, What I drank in with my mother's milk, the best thing I could think of was Star Wars. Um, uh, I don't know whether any of you can relate to that, but I watched those movies again and again as a child. I just, you know, I, and the result is that I know them backwards, forwards, and sideways. Um, I know pretty much every detail in there. And so if you come up to me one day and you're struggling with something and you say to me, oh, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Or if you, if you really know yourself and you go, help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only You know it. I know exactly what you're getting at if you do that. Okay. I don't just recognize that as a quote from the film. I can picture the whole scene from which that comes. And I get a sense for your uh, feeling of desperation if you uh, say that quote to me. And maybe I even start wondering if you've been imprisoned on some remote space station and I need to come and rescue you. (laughs) Seriously, though, it was a bit like that for these first century Jews in terms of their experience of the Old Testament. When they heard little snippets from it, because they had been so steeped in that stuff from birth, Those snippets brought back the whole moments, the whole scenes from which those uh, uh, little moments came. And those things just would have jumped out at them. And what we need to see here as we dive into this passage in Mark is that it's full of those kinds of little quotes and Old Testament snippets. First of all, think with me about this donkey that Jesus rides. To us, a donkey seems like an almost comic way to get around, doesn't it? Donkeys are pack animals in our world. Uh, They do the lowliest tasks. But in the Old Testament, the donkey uh, was the chosen ride of a ruler. If you flip to Judges 10, just look at a typical ruler of Israel uh, at that period in their history. You read about this uh, guy called Jer of Gilead, who we're told had 30 sons and they ruled in 30 towns and each of them rode a donkey. David himself rode a donkey. So did all of his sons. Absalom, who we talked about earlier, was riding a donkey when he was caught by David's army. So riding a donkey into Jerusalem says something, just in and of itself, doesn't it? And the crowd picked up on that, as we can tell from what they shouted. Our text tells us that they flocked around Jesus, calling out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And they weren't just pulling that stuff out of thin air. Their words are drawn from a psalm as well. It's one of the royal psalms, Psalm 118. Psalm 118 tells the story of a king who entrusts himself to the Lord. And his enemies surround him, but in God's strength he wins. He beats them. And after winning that battle, he comes back into Jerusalem in through the gates of the city, and as he approaches the temple, his people respond uh, with these words. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, we join in the festal procession. 
up to the horns of the altar. So that's powerful, isn't it? Jesus isn't just riding a donkey like a king. He's receiving the praise that's due to a king. Just like the king in the psalm. The people all around him are waving palm branches and singing out their praises as he comes marching back into the city. And all of that would have just been so obvious to us if we'd grown up steeped in the Old Testament like these people did. Strange though it may seem to us from this scene, Jesus is proclaiming himself king. But there's more to it even than that. You see, this could have been taken as an attempt to start a rebellion, couldn't it? It could have been seen as an attempt to put Jesus on Herod's throne. But the way that Jesus does this, he so clearly has more than that in his sights. You see, if you look back through Israel's history, you find that the Herods aren't really much of a royal dynasty at all. They have some tenuous connections back to the royal family that ruled Israel under the Greeks a couple of hundred years before Jesus was born. But these guys aren't the real kings of Judah. The real kings of Judah were the sons of David, right? It's one of the big things that we've been learning as we've been going through this series, that southern kingdom of Judah carrying the bloodline of David from father to son, from father to son. That was the promise that God made back in 2 Samuel 7, that David's line would not fail until the coming of the one to whom all the Old Testament kings pointed. And in fact, that promise goes even further back. You might remember this from Rod's teaching at the end of the Genesis series. Do you remember the words that Jacob uses when he blesses his sons in Genesis 49? When he comes to Judah, the son from whom that whole line of David will ultimately come, Jacob said this. He says, your brothers will praise you, Judah. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You're a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches down. And who dares rouse him? That's the whole beginning of this uh, idea of the lion of Judah. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. So now do you see that this donkey is becoming even more interesting? It would have been one thing for Jesus to ride into the town and claim that he was a rival to the rulers of the day. But Genesis 49 goes way further than that. Genesis 49 reminds us that deep in Israel's past, God had made a promise that one day a king from Judah's line would rule the nations. Beyond David, beyond any of his successors, God anticipated that the crown would come at last to the one to whom it really belonged, the Lion of Judah, who rides the donkey of royalty and washes his garments in blood. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, I know we have a moratorium on Lord of the Rings illustrations in this church right now, <laughs> but I'm afraid this message is just going to be one of those places where that has to be temporarily suspended. Um, because at this point... Um, <laughs> This point that Israel was a nation that was waiting for a promised king is one of the main points in the Bible story that Tolkien brings to life for us. And for me, the way that he does that is way too powerful for us just to kind of leave it on one side. So for those of you who know the Lord of the Rings story, you know that it's based on the idea that deep in the past of Tolkien's imaginary world of Middle Earth, a similar promise to the one that's made to Judah 
is made to the kings of a kingdom called Gondor. The promise stems from a period in Gondor's history where they are nearly wiped out by this evil wizard called Sauron. And yet, despite their apparently hopeless situation, uh, King Elendil of Gondor rides out to confront Sauron and he beats him. King Elendil himself is killed and his royal sword is shattered. But his son, Isildur, takes up his father's broken blade and he cuts the hand off Sauron's arm and claims the ring that gives Sauron all of his power. Isildur then has a chance to destroy the ring, but he finds himself enthralled by it and it leads him to his death. The ring is lost and the kingdom of Gondor starts to decay to the point where ultimately the house of Elendil has no obvious heir and a series of caretakers or stewards uh, take charge of the government of the kingdom. And so it remains for thousands of years. And it seems that that's the way that things will always stay. Except for the fact that the kingdom of Gondor is left with the prophecy, the words of which you'll probably know. It goes like this. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. From the ashes a fire shall be woken. A light from the shadows shall spring. Renewed shall be blade that was broken. The crownless again shall be king. And then the book goes fast forward to the present world of Middle Earth, where Sauron is rising to power again and the ring has been rediscovered. And into this situation, Tolkien drops a character called Aragorn. And he's a a wanderer. So a kind of rough-looking traveller, a man of few words. And when the heroes of the book, Frodo Baggins and his friends, first meet him, they're afraid, rightly so. But that's not how it ends. As we turn the pages, we see this Aragorn guy voluntarily step uh, in and join the hobbits in their danger. He saves their lives again and again. And as the book develops, we start to wonder whether there isn't more to this guy than we first suspected. We find out that he traces his ancestry back to those kings of Gondor. And we can't help be reminded of the opening lines of the prophecy. All that is gold does not glitter, nor all those who wander are lost. Might Aragorn, this guy with no glitter factor, this wanderer, actually be the long-expected king? And that's just the question that we're faced with here in our text. Here we're watching this Jesus character come down the hill into Jerusalem. And maybe we don't know too much about him. He seems a bit rough, kind of unlikely uh, candidate for leadership. And yet if you know the promise of Genesis 49, and if you see this event with Jesus riding his donkey into Jerusalem like the kings of old, you can't help making the connection, can you? Jesus is making us wonder whether he is the one. He's making us wonder whether he might be the Lion of Judah, the one to whom the scepter has always belonged, the one who will claim the obedience of the nations. And that suspicion gets even stronger when we follow another Old Testament link that must have been popping into these people's minds. You see, this biblical idea of a longed-for king isn't just restricted to Genesis. This flame of hope kept burning all the way from the beginning of the Bible to the end, And uh, when we reach the book of Zechariah, near the end of the Old Testament, it burns out even brighter than before. In Zechariah chapter 9, the prophet pictures the coming of the longed-for king with these words. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, 
daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So can you see that this is getting kind of in your face now? Everyone who saw what happened when Jesus Jesus rode into Jerusalem, who had this passage from Zechariah on their mind, would have seen this really clearly. The one who comes lowly and riding on a donkey is the one whose rule will extend from sea to sea. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah here. And all of that just snaps into place finally when we add just one final piece to the puzzle. Let me read you that text that we began with again. The text from 1 Kings that describes the moment when Solomon was crowned. We're told that Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Carathites and the Pelathites went down and had Solomon mount King David's donkey. And they escorted him to Gihon. Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the sacred tent and he anointed Solomon. And then they sounded the trumpet and all the people shouted, long live the king. And all the people went up after him, playing pipes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. Now look at that on a map on the map here for a minute. Okay. So we've got Solomon coming down to the Gihon Spring and then going up into the city, riding a donkey, with people shouting and praising so that the, uh, the ground shook with the sound. That's exactly the route that Jesus took. Jesus is reenacting the coronation of Solomon. It's really striking. Sorry, if you just refresh that one, Tim. I didn't realize you weren't able to see it while I was doing it. Let's try again. Just refresh it. There we go. Okay. So he's coming down the same hill, down to the Gihon Spring, up into the city with people shouting and rejoicing as he goes. Do you see what Jesus does then in our text is mirroring Solomon's own route. A thousand years after it happened for the first time, Jesus was placed on a donkey just like Solomon was. And he retraced the steps that Solomon took with the crowd all around him rejoicing and singing and proclaiming the coming kingdom of our father David. So nobody could have missed his intention here, could they? Jesus is reenacting Solomon's coronation. And now that we've been through this series together... I hope that we all know what that means. We all know where Solomon points, don't we? Solomon was the king when the last great picture of God's intentions for the whole of human history came together. Solomon was the king who showed us all the pieces. God's people living in God's place, experiencing God's presence and his rule over them. And all of it exploding outwards in blessing to the nations. Solomon was the greatest king in all of Israel's history. And yet we know that that was just a picture, don't we? Solomon's failure shows us that. His life left Israel longing and yearning for the real thing. For the king who would come and actually deliver this return to Eden that God had promised all along. Year after year, century after century, they were left thirsting for God himself to come and do what no human king could do. And now, after a thousand years of waiting, Jesus comes. And pulls back the cloak and says, this is it. I am the Lion of Judah. 
This is like that moment in The Lord of the Rings when Aragorn finally draws the reforged sword of Elendil from its sheath and claims the obedience of his people as their rightful ruler. But this is for real. This really happened. This isn't a story. Jesus is stepping out from the shadows of history here and telling us he is the one and all the expectations for the coming king converge right here. All the hopes that flow out of the life of David for a king who's a shepherd, for a king who stands in the place of his people and fights the fight that they could never fight and wins, a king who deserves the title God's son because he is God's son, on it? All of that converges here. All of the hopes that flow out of Solomon's reign for a king who brings peace to his people and whose kingdom is a magnet to the nations, for a king whose kingdom is a delight to live in, a king whose presence and wisdom make his people truly happy, all of it converges here. All the hopes that flow out of Jeroboam's reign for a king who will humble himself, for a king who understands that the way to God is massively specified from God's side and yet who makes and keeps every piece of that specification down to the finest detail, all of it converges here. All of the hopes that flow out of Ahab's reign, for a king who is stable and rational, for a king that we can trust, for a king who is purposeful, a king who's a leader and knows where life-giving water can be found, for a king that we can believe in, a king who puts our interests above his own, all of that converges right here. All the hopes that flow out of Hezekiah's reign for a king who clears out our idols and leads his people in dependence on God. For a king who recognizes the threats that we face and spreads them out before the Father on our behalf. All of it converges here. All the hopes that flow out of Josiah's reign for a king who's a worshipper himself. For a king who sees our need and provides the sacrifice required to meet that need despite extraordinary personal cost. For a king who believes in the redemption of the broken, who will give us a second chance. All of that converges right here. Jesus is the king to whom the whole Old Testament points. Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nations will be his. It really happened in actual human history. It's kind of powerful, isn't it? I don't know about you, but it just makes me want to worship. Makes me just want to turn around and offer him my sword, such as it is, and said, okay, wherever you're going, like, I want to go there too. And whatever help you need, like getting done what you want to get done, I can't imagine you need any, but if you do, like, I'll do dishes, I'll do anything. Just let me follow. Because I see you for who you are. But we aren't quite done with this text yet. Because we see Jesus entering Jerusalem here, don't we? Reenacting Solomon's coronation, following exactly the same route. But we don't see the same result, do we? Solomon went up to the city and he began to rule. But Jesus went up to the city and was rejected. Within five days, this crowd that was singing his praises will be yelling out, crucify him. So what kind of a coronation is this really? And what kind of a reign is it that Jesus came to begin? Well, if we go back to the start of our passage, we find the beginning of the answer to that question. Do you remember the way that the story started? It's kind of curious. Uh, Jesus sends his disciples into a village and he tells them before it happens what they're going to find there. 
We're told he sends two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it. And we'll send it back here shortly. And the disciples found it just as he said. Now that really confused me when I first read it. I don't know about you. Because Jesus doesn't seem to have done anything quite so blatant as this previously in his ministry. And it it all seems a bit pointless, doesn't it? Uh, For him to display his omniscience like this over such a trivial thing as just finding a donkey to ride. Seems a bit like Superman using his x-ray vision just to see if there's another soda in the fridge. It's kind of, you know, like, shouldn't he really be using his powers for something more important than that, like saving the world? But if we read on a little bit further in Mark, we find that actually this is not half so trivial as we might think at first. In Mark 14, Jesus does exactly the same thing again. When the time comes to prepare the Passover meal, the wording is almost identical. Jesus sends two of his disciples again, telling them, go into a city, and uh, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you, follow him. Say to the owner of the house that he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I might eat the Passover with my disciples? And he'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready, make preparations for us there. And that similarity is telling us something. The way that Jesus issues the instruction, telling his disciples exactly what will happen before it happens, showing them that he knows what's going on in places where he isn't, that tells us that he's God, doesn't it? No human being can do that. So Jesus very visibly puts the full weight of his divine authority behind these two events that he's preparing for. Knowing exactly how they'll unfold, he gives the triumphal entry and the Last Supper and all the messages that they're designed to communicate his stamp of divine approval. But what are those messages? What are those events designed to communicate? Well, we already know the answer for the first one. The triumphal entry is designed to tell us that Jesus is the long-expected king. But what about the second one? What's the top-level message of the Last Supper when Jesus broke bread and poured out wine and washed his disciples' feet? Well, it was telling us that Jesus had come to die on behalf of his people. It was picking up the language of the book of Isaiah, which looked forward to the coming of a suffering servant. And with the miraculous setup that happens in exactly the same way in both cases for the triumphal entry and the Last Supper, can you see that Jesus is drawing these two events into a pair uh, that kind of explain what it is that he's uh, come to Jerusalem to do? He's confirming this idea that's been running through the whole of Mark's gospel. The long-expected king is the suffering servant. And for Jesus' original audience, that would have been completely mind-blowing. And I wonder whether we find that mind-blowing too. Because we may prefer the idea of Jesus coming as a king and just blowing away his enemies and sitting down on the throne and saying, job done, Aragorn style. That's what the people in the crowd were hoping for. But that's not what Jesus had in mind. Jesus was coming to Jerusalem to be crowned with thorns and to die on a cross. And so all that makes me wonder if we don't have the title of the passage that we're reading here all wrong. Is this really a triumphal entry? I don't think so. If we want to know what a real triumphal entry was all about, we need to look at what the Romans did, because they invented the whole triumphal entry idea. A triumphal entry is a ceremony where a Roman general or an emperor, after returning from a particularly daring or dangerous battle, is uh, dressed Um, In honour, the 
The beneficiary of the ceremony would be dressed as the Roman god Jupiter. And then they would be rode through the capital city in a chariot drawn by four white horses. And a slave would accompany them holding a golden crown over their head. And behind them will come a procession of the emperor's senators and uh, magistrates. And then finally a procession of his captives uh, and the plunder gained in the battle. So a triumphal entry was good news in many ways. It was a cause of celebration for the king's subjects. But you see that it was bad news for his enemies. Really bad news. A triumphal entry signaled game over for the people who had opposed the victor. The procession of captives was a one-way ticket into the Roman arena and to the lions. We need to think carefully about that before we start wishing that Jesus was a bit more triumphant here. Because honestly, which side of it do we think we would come out on? Do we think that the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ would be good news for men and women like us or bad news, the way the Bible tells the story? The book of Romans tells us that God looks around the world for people who are with him, for people who love him with all their hearts and minds and with all their strength. But what he sees is that there is no one righteous, not even one. That there's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. That all have turned away and have together become worthless. If our hearts aren't changed, this desire that we feel to follow this king when we see him riding into Jerusalem is nothing better than the desire to follow him that the crowd showed when they waved their palm branches and called out on the Sunday his praise and then came back on the Friday and called out for his death. If this had really been a triumphal entry, none of us here this morning would have ever been born. All of humanity would have been called on the floor before him right there and the whole thing would have ended on the spot. That's what the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ would look like. But that was not God's intention. If we go back to all those expectations for the Messiah that we read, if we go back to Zechariah 9 or to Isaiah 61, which it mirrors, we find that God had something different in mind. And that's the plan that Jesus was intent on executing. When Jesus came to Jerusalem on this occasion, he didn't come to celebrate a battle, but to fight one. He didn't come to drag his enemies through the streets, but to be dragged through the streets in their place. Jesus came to gather up all our failures, our thoughts, our actions, all the secrets of our hearts all our selfishness, all our passivity and unconcern, all our pride and thanklessness for God's goodness to us, all our broken vows, all the stupidity of our belief that we have a better idea how to live than God does. He came to gather up all of that and to pay for it as if it was his own. Jesus came to bear the consequences of our sin on the cross, one man fighting on behalf of all, so that we would be left with no battle to fight, with no debts to pay. And he did it. He won. And the Bible tells us that that victory will be celebrated with a triumph one day. In Revelation 19, Jesus is pictured as a rider on a white horse, coming with captives in his train. And like all triumphal entries, that will be wonderful and terrible. Wonderful for the friends of the victor, and yet terrible, truly terrible. For his enemies. But the difference now is that we don't have to be his enemies. In the future, 
He will come riding on a white horse. But today, he comes riding on a donkey. In the future, there will be a day of vengeance. But today, this is still the year of the Lord's favor. In the future, he will appear over us and his arrow will flash like lightning, says Zechariah. But today, he comes bearing the blood of the covenant to free imprisoned humanity from the waterless pit that we've dug for ourselves without him. In Revelation 5, the angel tells John to look up and see who it is that's worthy to bring down the curtain on human history and usher in the new heavens and the new earth. The Lion of Judah, the Root of David, Aragorn, the long-expected king. But when he looks, do you know what it is that he actually sees? He sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne. That's the king to whom all the promises point. The lion and the lamb are one and the same. And we can become his subjects if we will bow before him and opt in to the extraordinary sacrifice that he made. See, against all expectation, because there's nothing in us that deserves this kind of treatment, Jesus is giving us these days before he returns to respond If we will accept the offer of his righteous life as the payment for our sinful lives, we will be accepted. And then as forgiven people, we can stand up and fight in his army. And when he comes, we will rejoice in the triumphal entry of the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, I don't know whether anybody else is where I am, but I'm lost for words just to thank you and worship you for your amazing greatness and goodness. God, it's beyond belief that there might be in this world a king to come and lead us and rule us and rescue us. We so don't deserve it. And then when we see what that king is prepared to do in order to to win us back, that it's not willing, cheerful followers that he finds, that it's people who would kill him as soon as look at him. And yet it's for those same people that he dies. Jesus, we just can't even get our heads around it, but we worship you. God, I pray for each one of us that you would help us just reach out to touch the hem of your robe to say, heal me. Let me be, let me be just a doorkeeper in your kingdom. Let me be the lowest slave in your army. Because you are the king. You, Jesus, you are the king.